Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guests are Emily Maitlis and John Sopel, aka the news agents. Brackets minus Lewis Goodall. Close brackets. Oh no. Open up those brackets again. I'll get Lewis on in the future. Close brackets. But this was arranged when it was just Emily and John way back when. And obviously this was meant to happen in September last year. We had to postpone the show because of the Queen's funeral. And now here we are. And this is absolutely worth the wait. They are incredible people. I mean, you'll already know that they are exceptional broadcast journalists and TV presenters, podcasters, the lot. But they are just such good fun. And it's, you know, sometimes, I mean, I think most, obviously, most of the people I have on this show are just great fun. But they're really, they are really fun people to spend time with. And this, and I always say this, but this really should have gone on for a lot longer. So hopefully I, I get to interview them again in the future. Because an hour, especially with two people of that calibre, it's just nowhere near long enough. And the, I mean, there's so many great stories in there about Donald Trump, about the Prince Andrew interview, about going to Davos, but but also the really serious stuff of working for the BBC and the problems that the BBC has, some that are no fault of its own, just in a way the result of it being an independent news organisation uh, in the sorts of country that we are with the news that we've had in the last few years. But just so much other stuff about the importance of the principles of journalism. It's just everything you would want and more. And they are just even more fun than you would imagine and great storytellers. And they have a genuine chemistry that is really <laughs> great as well as being phenomenal journalists. They are a, a natural comedy double act. Anyway, before I come on to uh, uh, the interview itself, uh, tickets for the other live shows are on sale and I've added a couple of guests since the last show. So uh, the next show on the 6th of February, my guest is Ian Blackford, uh, the former leader of the SNP in Westminster. Of course, he led the Westminster group of the SNP for five years, was a fixture at Prime Minister's Questions uh, and at the Cenotaph and so many major national events. And of course, he's a leading ally of Nicola Sturgeon. He's since been replaced by Stephen Flynn. So there are changes happening in the SNP. It'd be fascinating to talk to him about that. That's on Monday the 6th of February. Then on Monday the 20th of February, my guest is Keir Starmer. That show has sold out. On the 6th of March, my guest is Eddie Izzard. Now, you don't need me to tell you, I'm 40 years old. When I was growing up, Eddie Izzard was arguably the greatest comedian on the planet. I mean, Dressed to Kill is one of the greatest stand-up shows I've ever seen. And Eddie as you will know, is a, a passionate political campaigner, a Labour activist, hoping to stand for Labour for Parliament at the next general election. On the 20th of March, my guest is Krishnan Guru Murthy. I mean, talk about talented broadcasters and what a long and distinguished career he's already had. And on the 3rd of April, my guest is Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives, one of the most charismatic Funny and inappropriate people I've ever met. Just, I mean that in a good way. Just such a great, surprising sense of humour. And someone who, of course, has been outspoken on a number of issues, often um, going against the party line. So what an amazing run of guests. The next five shows, Ian Blackford, Keir Starmer, Eddie Izzard, Christian Guru Murthy and Ruth Davidson. Um, and you can get tickets for all those shows by clicking the link that's in the blurb. And I've also put a link in the blurb to two books, one written by John Sopel, Tony Blair, The Moderniser which we talk about, and one written by Emily Maitlis, Airhead, um, which we don't talk about as much, actually, but they are two phenomenal books, which I'm sure you would enjoy. So before we come on to the interview, uh, the live shows, of course, always begin um, with um, some stand-up comedy. <laughs> and, um, well, there was a lot to go off, wasn't there? Because both Rishi Sunak and, and Keir Starmer had done their big New Year's speeches.
he did this big speech the other week in East London, his New Year relaunch, and he goes, my government will do today what needs doing for tomorrow. <laughs> Something can be held accountable for. You're like, that is absolutely meaningless. I want to lead a government that will lock the door on the way out that will take the recycling out on time. I mean, it's worse than that. It's like those stickers people have in their kitchen. He's basically saying, my government believes that what's for you won't go by you. That there are two options for dinner, take it or leave it. And my government has three priorities, live, laugh, love. Meaningless drivel on the most part. I mean, when he talks about the NHS as well, oh, it makes me laugh so much. He goes, renewing our NHS is personal for me. My dad was a doctor. My mum was a pharmacist. He's like, I get this, but we also know that you're minted as a result, mate. So, like, it's not... It would be far more emotional if you said, the NHS is personal for me. My parents both needed life-saving care that only the, like, that's the emotional connection. It's not quite the same to go, the NHS is personal for me. Both my parents worked in it and made a fucking fortune. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to go to Winchester College without the NHS. <laughs> we like saying the war on drugs is personal for me. My dad was a feared mafia boss. <laughs> and my mum was a Colombian drug runner. <laughs> it's in my family. And the delivery, oh my God, the way he speaks isn't just weird, it actually becomes offensive. But he goes, there's one bit in it where he goes, my government, these are our promises, and we'll either deliver them or we won't. <laughs> it's not fucking Asda, mate. I don't want like a voucher at the end of the month. So we'll either deliver them or we won't. This is our people's lives. Your mum will either die in pain on a trolley in a hospital corridor, or she won't. <laughs> Absolutely incredible the way he talks to people and the stuff he comes out with. Oh my God. And his whole, I don't know, his whole solution, by the way, to the, the, the huge problems facing our country is this. Most children will study some sort of maths until 18. Now, some sort is, I don't needlessly vague. What do you mean some sort of maths? They're either studying maths or they aren't to the age of 18. And also, I, don't, I haven't got a problem with kids doing maths till 18. Now, that's objectively a good thing. But don't sell that as the thing that's going to solve all our immediate problems. At the very least, there's a two-year time lag on a 16-year-old. You're like, well, we need solutions now to the fact that my mortgage has gone up by £500 a month. Some kid doing double maths in five years' time is not the immediate... It would have been like Tony Blair after 9-11 saying an attack on one developed nation is an attack on us all. And today we stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in America. And let me say this to the terrorists who would undermine our way of life. This isn't about foreign policy. This is an attack on freedom as a principle. Not only will we deliver the military strength required to win this war, and indeed the intelligence to support it, but something else. Double science. <laughs> I don't think we're going to win this war on terror. There was a, a line Keir Starmer had, and he's really trying to pin the NHS thing on it. Keir Starmer says to him, when I clap for nurses, <laughs> I meant it. <laughs> what? What are suggesting the rest of us didn't? Like, what? I mean, I get that he's making the point between him and Rishi Sunak, but like, I wouldn't know how I was, even on the 10th week, 
every time I did not, my mind did not wonder once, Mr. Speaker. I know some people sort of drift off if they're on their own street. I'm thinking about the shopping, but no, not me. Even on week 25 for a solid minute, nurses, nurses, nurses. <laughs> and then he does this thing where the wording of it, obviously it's a very serious issue, but the wording of it is so funny. He gets some Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. He goes, Mr Speaker, it's three minutes past 12. If someone fearing they're having a heart attack rings an ambulance now, can the Prime Minister tell them when it should arrive? Now, obviously, that's quite a neat idea to use the time, but it sounded more like a hostage film. It was like, speed, pop quiz, Prime Minister, there's a bomb on a bus. Mr Speaker, it's important that he hears it. If the bus goes above 50, the device is triggered. If it goes below 50, the bus will explode. What will the Prime Minister do to ensure that Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock get off that bus in time? Well, Mr Speaker, the only reason a bomb got on the bus is because his paymasters in the transport unions went on strike. We got terrorists on buses thanks to the Labour Party. But he did... Uh, it's a little bit where... Uh, it's sort of, he then says, it's now 20 past 12. Our victim is worsening. Their chest is getting tight. They're feeling dizzy. <laughs> I mean, I wonder what other drafts he went through before he settled on this. What must have been the mildest version he could come up with. The person is at the top of the stairs. They're teetering there, Mr Speaker. They're blacking out. They fall face first. There's blood everywhere. It's 12.21. They're crawling to the phone, but they can't make it. They shout, but the blood in their throat is preventing them. They finally pick up the handset and then they die. Mr. S I will get to the question. What will the Prime Minister say to their grieving relative? Order! Order! No, no, no. Uh, look, no, no, no. Order. Dealing with this, you be quiet. Order! Uh, say the honourable... No, no, no. Look, leave the opposition. Perfectly entitled, perfectly entitled to use this forum to create a hypothetical scenario. Order! No, I'm To deal with a heart attack victim, a totally fight... Perfectly within the rules to, to do that. <laughs> All I would say is, it, it's a little bit bleak. Could he, could, in this hypothetical scenario, could he give us a wee bit more hope at the end? <laughs> Our difference to you, Mr. Speaker, I will. They get to the phone and they die on 999, <laughs> but the person on the other end can't understand what they're saying. Thank you very much. Maybe you could, just in future, maybe include them pulling an emergency cord, because I've got one of them in Martha. <laughs> nice one, very strange seeing Starmer use promises questions like that, but he, uh, he, he had his own New Year's speech, Keir Starmer, and uh, again, some of the phrases... He, he started off... A lot of politicians struggle to just say, the public haven't liked us for a bit, and now they like us. And they find all these weird phrases like, we need to be able to look the 21st century in the eye. Like, something it's literally impossible to do. And <laughs> Keir Starmer said, in 2022... The British people took a fresh look at us, and for the first time in a long time, we could return their gaze with confidence. I think, where's this? What do you mean they're looking at you and you're looking back at like We could look back at them, maybe even smile, readjust our hair slightly self-consciously, twirl with it a bit to let them know that we like them, maybe even blow them a kiss. It felt odd, sort of, where it was going. And then it's a classic thing where 
politicians want to show that they're connected to the country, so they name industries in all different parts, and then they try and connect with emotional things that have happened. Because think of the great things that our sports people have achieved. Double World Cup winning cricketers, the Commonwealth Games, and the lionesses who brought football home. Like, go on, mention the men. And Harry Kane, for fuck's sake. Look, I know he was taking a penalty for the second time against the teammate, but if in doubt, put your fucking laces through it. Of course it's not coming home with the men. Also, there are certain sports that politicians do mention and others that they don't. I mean, he didn't pay tribute to any boxers, for instance. And Tyson Fury. A great British sports person who battered the shit out of Dillian White and Derek Chisora. Left them with life-changing injuries. There was something else he said as well that was... Uh, oh, that was it. He said... Uh, he was asked by Laura Koonsberg. He went on, uh, on Koonsberg's new show on, on Sunday. And she said to him, um, Keir Starmer, would you intervene in a royal drama uh, like John Major was asked to with Prince Charles and, and Camilla? He said, no, no, I wouldn't. And you're like, what, you're going to get... The inference being that if Keir Starmer's Prime Minister, you might have to help Harry and William build bridges. I mean, of all the people to send in... I mean, I think Keir Starmer's a very diplomatic man. I just think... I don't think it would work sending him to the past. Look, Harry and William, for the good of the... Get around the table and find a solution that not only benefits your family and the British state, but the country, the Commonwealth and the world. Actually, I think what you've just said demonstrates a lot of unconscious bias towards um, different hierarchical structures, family, race, gender, class. And yeah, sure, look, I had issues with that and I had to think about a lot of that and that's why I wrote a book about the fact that I killed a Taliban thousand warriors while gacked off my nut um, <laughs> and I've read the book and it's a great read and look, and, oh, on the one hand Harry you're saying you want to build a bridge with your brother but you're monetizing stories about him trying to drown you in a dog bowl look, I, get, <laughs> I get that there are issues between you but you have to see it from his perspective He's the heir to the... You've got to remember when you were both growing up, he was the good-looking one. He... And now... Like, oh, yeah, he was the good-looking one. Then his hair fell out. He started moping around like a sad egg. <laughs> got to see it from his... And by the way, I, I get that you need to tell your tale, but does it have to include losing your virginity in a field? But I'm writing a book at the moment. That won't be in it. <laughs> yes, I have lost my virginity. But, well... <laughs> It was after um, uh, a 1980 Labour Party conference debate on legal aid, but that's not the point. <laughs> I'll tell you this for nothing, if I do end up with a frostbitten penis, I will resign. <laughs> but of course, the current government is uh, engulfed with a number of scandals, which we may speak to uh, tonight's guests about. The main one, actually, in my opinion, being Rishi Sunak has received another fixed penalty notice, this time for not wearing a seatbelt. Now, this guy has got two fixed penalty notices within a year. He's going to have like, the most bizarre criminal record of just the smallest crimes you can commit. <laughs> Get done later this year for jaywalking. <laughs> it's just so weird that this has become a thing. Some people have said, um, oh, it's not that serious. You know, if you're not wearing a seatbelt, is very, very serious. It would absolutely save your life. And he's not in control. He might say, well, I've got a good drive. You're not in control of what else is going on on the roads. I mean, that could have had... Catastrophic consequences. Imagine if that car he was filming that video in had got rear-ended and he'd gone through the windscreen. I mean, it could have been a terrible... He'd still be lay on the tarmac going, I will either die from my injuries or I won't. If only Keir Starmer knew how long this ambulance would be.
ladies and gentlemen, what a very, very special second half we have on the way. Of course, this was meant to happen in September, on the, roughly the 19th of September, um, but the Queen died. Um, Spoiler alert, if, uh, if you've not watched the news for the past few months. Um, but I'm delighted that we've been able to make tonight happen. Not only because since then, tonight's guests really have grown even more in stature, which would have been unthinkable. They continue uh, to, to break the news in their own unique way. And they are two immensely gifted broadcasters and journalists in their own right, who've had amazing run-ins with global level uh, news individual. I don't know why I'm talking like that. Prince Andrew and Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll come on to, but for now, please raise the roof for two of the hosts of the news agents, the amazing Emily Maitlis and John Sobel. <laughs> John, thank you so much. You got wine and water? I'm sorry, we're late. Three months late. That's OK. But it wasn't your fault, was it? You can so small portions of wine. <laughs> that bodes well. <laughs> so, it's because he thinks we're not going to be funny until we've had the wine. So give us about ten minutes. You, should we, should we stop him asking any questions? <laughs> and just kind of commentate this whole better, thing. Much better. So you've both... I'm incredibly uh, jealous of the fact that you've both been to Davos. <gasps> I've always wanted to go. What's it like at this time of year? <laughs> well, he goes every year. I don't go... You go every year. I wanted to go once so that I could say, I'm just going to Davos. Yeah. And then I would come back and I'd say, I've just been to Davos. And for the next three months, if anyone says anything to me, I'll go, oh, I was just in Davos. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't get to the phone. I was in Davos. So I'm going to carry on saying that a lot. But you're you're a natural at this. Well, so the first time I went to Davos was... I went to interview Blair... He said, come talk to me before the interview and I'm going to be at this thing. And so I go to the Hotel Belvedere and I go and see... I dare not move. And I go and and I walk into this small room, which is like a living room. And there is uh, Tony Blair and there are Bill and Melinda Gates and there is Bono and there is the supermodel Claudia Schiefer. Uh, Desmond Tutu's there, Prince Andrew's there. And I think, Jesus Christ, I'm the only person in this room I haven't heard of. And it was like Madame Tussauds had come to life. And that is what Davos is like. It sounds amazing. So what year was that? I mean, I'm presuming that because Prince Andrew was there, it was quite a while ago. <laughs> he sort of got less popular after... I don't know what happened. He did an interview, it went to shit. That party... They can't all stay with him now. That's the trouble, isn't it? I think they were all staying with him at yeah. that time. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. So, when you're in a room with Bill and Melinda Gates, Prince Andrew, Tony Blair, <laughs> Claudia Schiffer, are they all just sat around having biscuits? Are some of them stood up, like, They're by saying, the record player? Oh, it's that John Sopel. No, no. It's John Sopel in the no, corner no, of the they're, they're talking about sustainability with their private jets just down the road, <laughs> which is a, kind of very much part of the Davos thing to do. You talk about green issues while your car is waiting outside with the engine running. We're going to have to sort that microphone out, John. But I I wonder if... I mean, that's a really good point, actually. Somewhere, Bill Gates is telling an auditorium full of people, I was there at Davos a few years ago, and I was there with Tony Blair, Claudia Schiffer, and John Sopel. And, oh, my... Is that what Bill Gates sounds like? Sounds like Woody Allen now. I don't know. It was bad for my anxiety. Um... So when you're in a room like that, do you feel the pressure, or as a, as a highly trained journalist, are you totally cool in that company? Well, if you're a journalist, you kind of often think about interviews and who you'd like oh. to interview. Oh, no. The microphone. Joe, what can we do? 
He's just oh, changing it. Oh, shout! <laughs> <laughs> I'll make for a relaxing evening. Because <laughs> I don't get really to hear point. enough yeah. of John on a daily basis, so this is terrible for me. <laughs> really disappointing. So was this your first Davos? This was my first Davos. And there was this really funny moment where we're kind of working the room, right? Is that the technical, you know, we're in this amazing party and we're working the room. And this bloke comes over to us and he's like, oh, can I introduce you to my CEO? I've just told her that two of the BBC's most famous journalists are here. (laughs) And I'm thinking... I can't ruin this by saying we've moved on. It's just going to kill the vibe. So I'm like, oh, where? Who? Lovely. Anyway, he pulls his boss over, and her name is, I think it's Vanessa? Anyway, there's Vanessa. We shake hand, blah, blah, blah. And I look at her badge, Vanessa Kerry, and she's like, oh, I'm in sustainability, and I'm in this, and I'm in that, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of thinking, oh, Vanessa Kerry. And then John's going... Oh, so how did you get into sustainability? And she said, oh, my family's been in public service. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. She's like, I know you shouldn't think like this because she's amazing, she's her own CEO, but she's also John Kerry's daughter. And I'm kind of thinking, is she John Kerry's daughter? How can I ask? And then there was this really funny moment where just at the point where I'd got brave enough to say, oh, is the public service that your family's from anything to do with being, like, a former presidential candidate and secretary of state and vice president and all the rest of it? And just as she says, oh, yes, my dad's John Kerry, Soaps, I think, didn't hear and went, right, we're off anyway. (laughs) And it was so brilliant. Your timing was impeccable because you just decided that she was a bit dull and we had to go, you know, diagonally across. So she goes... Oh, yeah, my dad's John Kerry. John goes, right, we're off. (laughs) This poor woman's like, what did I say? What did I do? I didn't think they were so anti him. It was really funny. I mean, the other funny thing about it was that... So there was this kind of giant room with a dance floor, um, DJ, and... But just in this ante room, uh, there was Tony Blair sitting next to Keir Starmer, sitting next to Rachel Reeves. And they had with them, uh, Tony Blair had, there were two staffers who used to work for Blair 25 years ago, um, who've gone on to be immensely successful. But they were rushing around, still like they were 25-year-olds, trying to find people to bring for Keir Starmer to meet. You know, important, influential CEOs who may be the daughter of a former American Secretary of State, for example. Um, and, and it was, there was, was a court. It was, you know... And when you're seeing Tony Blair and Keir Starmer chatting to each other, like, do they seem to be getting on? Is one doing more of the talking? Like, what was the dynamic between them? It was like, there's Matt Ford talking to Matt Ford. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> How can he be the same place at once? No, I thought that um, he, Tony Blair kind of clearly wants to be helpful uh, to Keir Starmer. Um, and I think that, I mean, you know, in the... Oh, oh. Got it. Joe, what can we do? Emily Maitlis has done this, hasn't she? <laughs> this is this my is cunning this. ruse. Been silenced by the global I'm, elite. I'm going to hold the pack and talk Sorry, kindly to it. Maybe the wire. I'm just not going to move now for the rest I of the evening. I think it's Bill Gates. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what yeah. The microchips. Yeah. Exactly. Chips come loose. Yeah. <laughs> the, lizards, the lizards of Davos have done for me. <laughs> So you what both... were you going to say anyway? You tell me. And yeah. Well, no, no I, 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 well, and you'll translate for me. That's very yes. kind. You'll do the subtitles. No, I thought that, um, you know, I think Blair probably had some doubts about Keir Starmer. 
And I think that Keir Starmer has acquitted himself pretty well, done it his way. And I think there's a kind of, you know, all of those people who may have just had reservations, I feel that they think that it is within Keir Starmer's grasp. I also think, sort of serious point here, that for about 20 years, everyone who came after Blair didn't really like him or actively rejected him, right? <laughs> I mean, we know that Gordon Brown didn't like Blair. And then Ed Miliband basically distanced himself from Blair. And then Corbyn really hated Blair. And so finally, there's this guy who's like, yeah, don't mind him. We won three elections. That was all right, you know. And Blair's like, oh, thank you. you know, <laughs> finally, somebody's kind of recognised that I did actually win an election for Labour. And I think that's probably such a, weirdly, such a new place for him to be 20 years on, that they are forging this kind of like, can I be helpful? I don't want to get on your toes. Yeah, please tell me what I'm doing. You know, Blair, I think, probably would, would you know, encourage him to go further. But Keir's like, I've got this, <laughs> you know. And when you, you interviewed um, Keir Starmer at Davos, do you get the sense that he's someone who feels that power's within his grasp? Do, you know, sometimes people can feel powerful or not. They, you can see it in opposition politicians sometimes. You get the sense they know when they're going to lose the next general election. But do him and Rachel Reeves, and they were there together, are they giving off a sort of government-in-waiting energy? There was certainly a government-in-waiting energy in the way that they were treated by a lot of the mm. other people. Mm. The, the bankers, the CEOs, they all wanted to meet Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves and to find out what they were thinking and how they saw it. I think from Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, if you've been through, you know, 12 years of failure... Uh, that Labour have been, and you go to the worst election defeat since 1935, you're not naturally filled with confidence. And I think there's still a great caution in them, which I think they quite thrive on the feeling of, you know, let's not get carried away with mm. ourselves. I think, in per I mean, you know, in terms of policy making, we, we spent quite a bit of time trying to talk to him about Europe, and he, he, it's like, I don't want to talk about Europe. I don't, please don't, please, you know, and there's this, it sometimes feels that there is almost this little conspiracy between the Conservatives who've seen that Brexit hasn't really worked out brilliantly so far. I mean, obviously some would argue it's been a fantastic success. Um, um, the Labour Party, who don't want to be labelled... Uh, Ramona's and the BBC saying, thank God, they're not talking about Brexit, neither do we have to. So but we talk about Brexit quite a lot. There was this, there was this very funny moment because... Um, so we were there for the news agents, that's our new pod, and we, and we had Keir Starmer... Sh seamless. Seamless. seamless the way that plot... Oh, did anyone this? brought into the concert. And we sat him down... And <coughs> made by Persephonica. Made by Persephonica. Thank you. Or Global. And we thought that the lovely thing about doing a podcast is that you can kind of, like, you know, wear whatever, it's audio, we're all chilled but no we get to Davos and there's this beautiful television sort of studio with all the cameras set up and Kestama sits down and our cameraman says can you um, sorry can I just ask you to you know just alter the direction just shift a tiny bit to the left and he goes <laughs> and we go you know that's the right don't you <laughs> and, <he's> like, oh. <laughs> and so there was this sort of great moment where we're like I know that was not deliberate, but it's a very funny way to start a podcast from a Labour leader. Um, and then there he was, you know, he's at Davos and he's talking to CEOs. And it was the first time you'd seen somebody reel off all these banks and corporations and PLC without... The, 
embarrassment, I think, that would normally have gone with them. That seems to me a shift. And if I was saying, oh, sorry, I'm at Davos, he was saying it even more. He was like, I've just arrived at Davos. Can you hear me? Yes, Davos, I said. There was no mistaking that he kind of wanted that to be the thing. One of the times I went, there was... um, I mean, Davos is in the mountains, and it's near some really nice ski slopes. And um, George Osborne was there. This is when he was Shadow Chancellor. And Douglas Alexander was there, and he was the International Development Secretary. And there was a conversation that went, um, so, skiing. I won't tell if you don't tell. (laughs) Because, of course, the last thing you want is for the British press to say, they were larging it up on the slopes. And so we all had a very jolly day skiing together. (laughs) Douglas Alexander not doffing in George Osborne and George Osborne not doffing in Douglas Alexander. That's called cross-party politics. That's that's, that's reaching across the aisle. (laughs) You mentioned the BBC earlier. You're both now free from the BBC. It must take a while to re-acclimatise and to lose some of the habits on impartiality and the qualifications, you have to say, after expressing an opinion or someone else's opinion. Now that you've got a bit of distance between yourselves and the BBC, I mean, obviously it feels like it was the right decision career-wise, you've gone from strength to strength, but is there a sense of personal liberation from that organisation? I I don't think we take impartiality any less seriously, actually, Matt, which is a really sort of boring thing to say. But I would say that since we've left, we are more rigorous with ourselves, more rigorous with the way we phrase things. I mean, we want it all to sound spontaneous, and hopefully it does, but the number of times we go, no, 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 do that. Is it a let? Did he say that, or did he say a let? Or did he say that he'd received it, or that he was going to receive it? We're really careful, actually, that we don't head into territory that makes the actual journalism worse, because I think what we're trying to do on the newsagents is... <laughs> Stop sniggering! I thought I was natural. That was me being natural. What were you laughing? Because I said the news agents. Again. Stop it! it. No. <laughs> anyway, I think I wondered why you laughed like that. <laughs> it was just I laugh. see. I could just hear this little. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but the point. I think what we're trying to do is say we can do journalism, good journalism, outside the BBC. And what you'll get, I hope, is full-throated analysis. There will be places that we can go that we might not have felt able to go. But it doesn't mean that we're shouty, shock jock, fact-free opinion. That, I don't think I, we're not really interested in that, are we? No, and I think that I was, I, I was going to pick up exactly the same way. I think that what we want to do is to do rigorous journalism. I think sometimes impartiality... <clears throat> in journalism, and sorry to be boring about this, is that some people think it's on the one hand, on the other. He says this, she says that, only time will tell, John Sopel, BBC News, Westminster. Um, and, I, and I do think that that is a sort of generic form of journalism which isn't impartiality. And so when I was, when I was in America as, you know, North America editor, day one, you know, with, of Donald Trump's presidency, we get the claim that the crowd for his inauguration was the biggest in history. It wasn't. And you can't say, well, on the one hand and on the other. You just had to say, that's not true. And I think you mislead the public if you kind of go in for that sort of journalism. I had an experience where I... uh, Name name drop here. I was on Air Force One, like you do, um, coming, coming from Saudi Arabia to London. 
And it was when Obama came over to talk about Brexit and, you know, Britain would go to the back of the queue for a trade deal, etc. And, and they, they said, would I do a report for the Morning Bulletin? I said, sure. And so I wrote a Morning Bulletin report. And, they, and the editor, overnight editor, said to me, yeah, it's a very nice piece, John. It hasn't got any Nigel Farage in it. And I said, well, that's weird, because I'm pretty certain Nigel Farage was on On Air Force One. Um, I'm to report on that. And there was a sort of... I felt slightly... I, I, kind of wrote and complained and said, look, we can't do journalism like this because it's, you know, not everything has to have an internal balance. And, you know, and you found that, I know, when you were editing Newsline. And so I think that we are more rigorous about impartiality, of trying to say, work out what this means and what the story is, and less focused on, on the one hand, on the other. Mm. And why do you think the BBC fell into that trap? Was it just Brexit, or did that... Did that um, formula exist before then, that just because Brexit was so emotional for everyone, that shone a light on, effectively, that formula? Oh, it's such a good question. I think that, that's the perfect cover for, like, <laughs> who the fuck knows? Um, <laughs> um, I, was, I remember doing... Do you remember that I, big I had thing? it on a sweepstake that the first <laughs> F-bomb would come ten minutes earlier, actually, so well done you, mateless. Thank you. I would curtsy now. <laughs> I would fall flat. Um, after the Wembley, do you remember that big Wembley debate? Yes, with Amber Rudd and Ruth Davidson. And exactly. And the stars. You know, don't let him drive you home. He yeah. crashed the car if he drove you home. That one. And I'd been hosting the 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 debate, which was about the politicians, kind of you know coming afterwards, the green room, the sort of spin room, all that sort of stuff. And I remember Craig Oliver coming back up to me, and Craig Oliver was working directly for David Cameron uh, at the time as his ch- chief of staff, you know, chief of comms, director of comms. And he said, Emily, the BBC is making a really big mistake here. You don't realise you're doing it, but every time you hear somebody saying one thing, right, you get somebody straight after them to contradict it. Right, which isn't the same as actually trying to find out if the thing that the first person said is true or false. It doesn't help if you have somebody just straight away from you know the the sort of Lee party going no, <laughs> you know, no, and so, and when Craig said that to me, honestly, my head just went. Oh, shut up, tell me what to do. I'm a journalist and you work for the Prime Minister. I literally shut him out. My head just went, no. (laughs) And so I sort of wouldn't allow that to percolate. And I wouldn't allow him to be saying something. And then about three years later, I suddenly, you know, I finally went up to him and I was like, Craig, you were the first person, actually. You were the one who said, you've got to stop doing yes, no, or this not, this not, you know. You've actually got to interrogate the facts that you're being told. And I think part of it was, if I'm honest, it was so complicated. You know, the difference between the ECJ and the difference between the Human Rights Commission, the difference between which were actually within the, the EU and within Europe more widely. And we had to get very, very speedily up to date on kind of fisheries and trade and, you know, and, and protocol and stuff like that. And, and I think partly, you know, and I'm not proud of this, but I think it was just, it was almost too, it was just too big an issue for a referendum. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, do you prefer tea or coffee in the morning? Coffee. Right? We can all do that, right? Do you prefer tea or coffee in the morning? It's a really good referendum result question, <laughs> Right. Because you've got an opinion and you know what your thing is and you know... But if somebody goes, 
Do you think the fisheries, you know, organisation will be better off within a Norway EEA structure or a Swiss non-EU structure? Everyone's like, can I do it again? What the fuck? You know, you have to be really knowledgeable to do that. And so somebody comes on and says one thing, and somebody comes on straight off them and goes, no. And you're like, oh, that's balance. Well, it isn't. Uh, Dino won the sweepstake for Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, to be fair to the BBC, they didn't call the referendum. Everyone that's involved in the BBC is then basically asked to referee these yeah. sorts of events yeah. with, with all the expertise you have. You're dealing with politicians who are... De- deliberately going to bring up mischievous arguments and misrepresent things. What could the BBC have really done differently, apart from just try and referee it as neutrally as possible? Of course. Yeah, I think, look, I think that's a very fair point. The BBC feels under acute political pressure. Always. 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 And we and, get that. You know, we've been right at the heart of the storm. Yeah, and, and it gets very bumpy, and you're trying to find a way through um, which causes least offence to most people, rather than keeping most people happy it seems um and i just think that you know us leaving the bbc i mean we don't get that sort of pressure and i think that there is you know the bbc is under colossal pressure from government from within yeah. and you know and you but then and does an amazing amazing job i mean we you know we can say from outside does an amazing job really you know most of the time we're, we're I mean, very proud to have... we we announced that we were leaving the bbc on February the 22nd, and it caused a certain amount of hoo-ha in the press, and then it's put really into perspective when two days later you get the biggest news story of our lifetime, uh, which is, you know, Putin's tanks rolling across the border into Ukraine. Not connected. And, yeah, not connected. <laughs> and, you, and you suddenly think, well, you know, and, and I looked at the coverage that BBC and ITV and Sky were doing from there. It was fantastic, yeah. and it made you feel proud of the importance. And I would say, having lived in America for seven and a half years how fantastic it is to have fair broadcasting in this country. Matt's face to what just you... gone like, oh, this is really boring now. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just banging on about how lovely British... No, but compared to... Compared Your to face what... was like, oh, this is really killing the vibe here. Shut Not up. at all. I like it when they're slagging things off. It's so much more fun. She's taking this over, hasn't she? she it had to happen. It was going to happen. I'm just watching his face. Oh. That is not fair. I was... John, fully engrossed. Thank you. <laughs> and agreed with every word. Um, Thank but I, you. But, so when you decided to leave, both of you then, was it... Who's, who made the decision first, and when did you start talking to each other about it? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I, I, so we... My daughter Anna is here somewhere. We were on a plane... Uh, Air Force One? No. <laughs> It's the only way he travels. I mean, PJ to Davos is so 2020. Hang on. Can I just say on Air Force One that if you are at Stansted Airport and you're wondering whether it's the M11 or the Stansted train into Liverpool Street, it's the quickest way into central London, can I recommend a US Marine Corps helicopter parked by the side of the plane that takes you straight into the back garden of the US Ambassador's residence in Regent's Park? From touching down to Regent's Park, 15 minutes. It was the way to go. Um, Anyway, anyway, back back to wherever we were, um, and um, oh God, where were we? I just Anna, Anna, yeah, Anna, Anna, oh, got the name check. No, no, I mean, you know, we were on our way to Australia. Um, I get a text on my phone saying, "I've got an idea." That's that's my impression of Maitlis. Okay, um, and and if you know Emily Maitlis, you know there are four thousand ideas a day, and so I kind of thought, oh yeah, whatever. And, and she said, we've had this conversation, and what about we should about us launching a daily news podcast? And kind of suddenly I'm there in Australia thinking, 
I said, that's cool. I wonder how long... And I, I'm thinking in BBC time, because BBC time moves rather slower in terms of things it's Jurassic, happening. it's like Jurassic. Yeah. yeah. And then what comes after... Like, Neolithic or something. Neolithic. I don't know. Like, oh, Mexozoic. and there's another crustacean or whatever. Yeah. Do I mean that? Crustacean, no. <laughs> no you don't mean a crustacean. Okay. Thank you. I've seen Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that metaphor was going really well. Um, and so... And, and then it all happened really, really quickly. Mm. And that there was... It, and it just seemed like a really exciting thing to do. And I think the thing that we had both been struck by is when we were, do, we were doing, for the BBC, an America-facing podcast called Americast, and it was getting enormous pickup, but not with the normal demographic of people that were over 60. And we were getting a lot of people... Because the 10 o'clock news, the Today programme, is listened to by a much older cohort. And listening to the podcast were huge numbers of young people. And it suddenly felt exciting. And so I can't, we kind of thought, well, if they want to do it, we're up for it. Well, we've got to mention Dino. Because yeah. Dino, Persephonica Dino, was really the sort of creative magic in this whole thing. You know, he brought newscast, Brexit cast, Corona cast, election cast. He's got a formula. <laughs> I'm trying to think what links all of those brands. And it just escapes me every time. But anyway, Dino was the one who just sort of... He somehow provides the audio magic. So we come on and we go, blah, 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 blah. Oh, did that make any sense? No, did that make any sense? No. And then Dina kind of does something with it and it sounds amazing. And we're like, oh, we were so good. <laughs> we were fantastic. Very, very lucid and articulate. And, you know, that was all Dina. And so Dino and I went for a walk in the park. Which park? Hyde Park. Just okay. before Christmas. It was the 23rd of Christmas, which is, in my family is the day that everything goes wrong. It was wrong. the 23rd of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Dino, could it's, you edit that bit? <laughs> it's a very special date. It's like that Harry Potter station. You know, it's the 23rd of Christmas. We went, we went for a walk. And we, we walked around the park a lot. And it's a big park. It's a big park. And then we saw a crow carrying a tic-tac box. <laughs> and that was the moment. It was literally trying to pick up this tic-tac box. And we were talking on the podcast yesterday about semiotics. What is the symbol of the crow? If you can't work that out, mate, I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> the crow was carrying the tic-tac box, and I was like, oh, my God, have you ever seen a crow carrying a tic-tac box? And Dino's like, I'll get it, I'll get it, I'll photograph, you know, we'll get it. And at that point, I was like, this day is going to be remembered forever. <laughs> and sure enough, the Gregorian calendar was changed to call it the 23rd of Christmas. <laughs> and that was the day we, ba we basically left the park, called Soaps, and went, had an idea. It's a bit shit, but just hear us out. And, and tell them what happened with the... You're stealing my punchline before I do the story. <laughs> So, so I have to then have a call with the big boss of Global um, where he's going to try and tell me, um, you know, discuss the idea. And I have been at the BBC by this stage for 35-plus years. And he says to me, so, John, a question I've got to ask you, are you really serious about leaving? At which point, two kookaburras are in the tree. I'm having to do the call in the garden because... Um, my son, Max, he's, he had a kind of 10-month-old uh, child and they were putting 
Eliza to bed. And so I was kind of kicked out into the garden to do this call. And it was 7.30 in the morning in uh, London. And the kookaburra makes a shrieking laugh sound. <laughs> and, you know, so are you really prepared to leave the BBC? And these kookaburras are going... They're <laughs> <laughs> like, really? Yeah. And so, that, and so I said, uh, yeah, I think I am. What do the kookaburras know that I don't? And, um, yeah, and so I kind of... And I answered it and thought, you know what, I am serious about this. And so we left. But at that point, did it feel like a risk? Yeah. Yeah. Huge jeopardy. So we had no, you know, you've got zero subscribers. You've got, we didn't zero have a name. Charisma. Zero charisma. Well, that's obvious. Zero name. Yeah, and it was the 23rd of Christmas. And it was, <laughs> and, you know, and we couldn't form a sentence. And so, um, <laughs> it's so rare that you can get one over on Mason. <laughs> that if the opportunity presents itself, take it. <laughs> And smash it, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was quite scary. And yeah, he yeah. gave this interview, we gave this interview to The Observer, and I listened to, so just going, call it risk, call it jeopardy, call it madness, call it idiocy, and it was getting more and more bleak, and I was like, oh, what have we done? <laughs> but it has worked out. Seems to be, so far. I mean, you know, so far, the listening figures are great, touch everything, um, and... Um, people seem engaged by the content, and Lewis Goodall, who is the you know the third person on this, is fantastic. Um, we posted a rather unfortunate photo of the three of us together when Lewis had just signed and just signed the deal because he joined a little bit later. And people did comment that it looked like Emily and I were saying goodbye to our gap year son as he, <laughs> as he went off. <laughs> Lewis sort of comes to the podcast and is six times smarter and better informed and brilliantly factual. And we're like, all right, shut up. Yeah, all right, yeah. shut up. You know, you're half our age, be quiet. Yeah. Show some respect. <laughs> yeah, show some respect. Lay the table. <laughs> you are going to clear those dishes. And also, just don't leave your dirty washing line. Yeah, no. I mean, you're not the only two... Big names have left the BBC in recent years, but do you think you leaving being more successful with a product like you say that retains impartiality but delivers it in a way that is far more satisfying to the viewer and the listener will shock the BBC into changing and, and that the BBC would allow a podcast like the News Agents to be put on BBC Sounds or something like that? Why are you looking at me? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think that the BBC wouldn't do a podcast quite in the same way because I don't think they would feel the confidence to have that sort of freedom and the kind of troublemaking potential that it would. And we, you know, we want to cause trouble. We want to cause trouble in a good way of asking difficult questions and raising issues that are a bit awkward. I do think that from what I hear from my colleagues that some of the, the more relaxed way of speaking and is, is kind of finding its way into... Slurring. Some, slurring. We're, yeah, we're passing that on. Have you finished that dance? Almost. Yes. <laughs> it's a relaxed um, way of slurring, and it's really uh, catching on. No, I think that the kind of... The fact that you can have a conversation, and that you're not just... It's ten past eight, and today we are joined now by the... You know, and, and I think that that sort of style maybe is kind of changing. And I think that... No, I'm not saying that it's the impact of us, but I think the impact of podcasts, yourself, others included... It's you. Know, you. Yeah. <laughs> it's you. You know, Rory and Alistair, they're, they're finding different ways to have a conversation. I, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I also think, actually... I mean, this sounds really obvious, 
I'm still going to balls up the explanation of it. What a podcast does is it takes off the time pressure. So if an interviewee is worth it, you give them longer. Yes. You don't sort of go, oh, it's sort of eight minutes past seven, we've got to be finished by 12 minutes past seven, because that's the slot, and then we've got to go to the thing, you know. You go, oh, that's interesting. Tell us a bit more. And if they're boring, you're like, yeah, I think we'll cut them off. I'm afraid that's all we've got time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you all very much. But I, do, but I think that's normal, right? If you're at a party and you're having an interesting chat, you make it longer. And if you're having a boring chat, you go, I, I just, I got a bit, you know. And I think that should be. That should be a sort of rule of thumb. Yes. That you shouldn't feel constricted to try and get everything, every interview, into the same length of time. Because what that does is it makes you sound harried and hurried, and the guests feel frustrated. And then you sound like you're sort of interrupting and you're over talking. And it's a horrible way of kind of doing business, right? Whereas actually, if you just say, yeah, we're really, you know, we're really interested, tell us, tell us it all, right? It's a much more natural way. I mean, that was also, I don't think I've ever heard on the Today programme um, a lead, an interview with the leader of the opposition where they play a clip of someone doing an impression <laughs> of the leader of the opposition, which we, what Ford, we did, yeah. we he played starred. a clip of Matt Ford. He uh, starred uh, at Davos. Doing yeah. his impression of uh, Keir Starmer. That was <laughs> right. We, do that one that you did on our podcast. Where you go, <laughs> just tell me. Just, Didn't you just tell me? What is the answer to the question, Never. <laughs> don't want to get bogged. Down in it, but he... we, that was what we did. We had Matt Ford's voice, being Keir Starmer, played to Starmer, and we watched his face. And we were like, "Who do you think that is?" And who do you think that is? And, and he was, yeah. And the other point is that look, you know, we're trying to make engaging content. So there was a lot of the interviews incredibly serious about the Metropolitan Police and the terrible things that have happened, and you know, kind of. Uh, but that's and the why best. are you laughing? <coughs> because. <laughs> That's kind of his... The Metropolitan Police. <laughs> <laughs> the most Keir Star... If you want to set him up. Yeah. Yeah. I set you up for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Now, obviously... Some no, of the wait, people... wait. What was the point you were going to make? Well, I just think that we're trying to make engaging content that is kind of fun as well as really serious. And that you feel... The, the politician doesn't feel the whole time... You're, there's going to be these series of gotcha questions. Yes. That it's going to be a, a conversation that will be probing and tough at times, but is also a, a, a way that, you know, that I, I kind of think that too often um, political interviews are seen as a zero-sum game. Someone wins, someone loses. And I think that in really good conversation, you could both come away thinking, that was really interesting. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Now, you've obviously, both of you had interactions, interviews with, with major... This is the Trump Prince Andrew thing. News. Yeah, because... Yeah, okay. But they're just big. such big... Let's do Trump first, because that, that, that clip where you're, you're only a few feet away from him, while he's president, and you say it from the BBC, and what's he said? That's another beauty. <laughs> it wasn't just an excuse to do that, but... <laughs> where are you from? Is that what he said? Where yeah, from? where are you from? I hadn't got a word out. <laughs> where are you from? And... Um, and I thought, uh, I'm sitting... In, and it's sort of that meta experience where, OK, I, you know, I kind of... Th I was started off in local radio. I thought I'd gone as far as I was going to go. Suddenly you're in the East Room of the White House and you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president and the leader of the free world. You're thinking, you know, and then it kind of it goes on and on and on. 
And then he kind of goes, stop, stop, I know who you are. And at that point, my phone lights up. Anna and Max saying, he knows who you are. (laughs) (laughs) And where you live. (laughs) It was quite threatening. It was quite threatening, that, wasn't it? It's designed to intimidate. Did you feel scared? No, I was... Look, I kind of had a pretty good hunch of um, how he was going to behave. Uh, And I I said... Because when he said, you know, where are you from? I said, BBC, he goes, another beauty. And I go, uh, yeah, we're free, free, fair and impartial. Um, and he goes, yeah, what, like CNN? And, you know, and it goes, and the banter is going backwards and forth, and I'm thinking, I'm going to stay polite, because we're British after all. And, and, and I also thought that actually the American media made a huge mistake of trying to be the opposition to Donald Trump. We're there to hold people to account, not to be the opposition. And I kind of thought, so I'm going to be very carefully modulated. Um, so I kind of knew what to expect, and it was, but it was quite a moment. And were there, after that, was there any communication from the White House to you via the BBC or anything like that? Um, the, the, the White House would kind of talk to us when they had to, um, which they didn't like to do very much. They, there was, there was, my cameraman got attacked by a Trump supporter at a Trump rally uh, in El Paso, Texas. And someone just came up, he's carrying you know, this huge heavy camera on his shoulder. Someone comes up behind, knocks him. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's now the governor of Arkansas, um, was then the press secretary to Trump. And I went to see her to complain and say, look, you've got, I, we can't... Because Trump had started saying about, oh, the, you know, the press, they're the enemy of the people, they're such liars, look at them all. And everyone looks around to where you're filming. And, it, 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 and that gets hostile. That really does get hostile. And so one idiot decides to push my cameraman Ron over... And, you know, and he hurt himself because he was carrying this bloody heavy camera. And I said, that's just not acceptable. And then we had a bit of a conversation. And I said, how do you manage? And she just goes, bourbon. And that was just instant. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought that was a kind of fantastic insight into what it must have been like working in the Trump White yeah. House. I mean, crazy enough for us. But if you're the staff and you're dealing with this, and, sh- and, and she meant it. I mean, I, I can attest to a couple of times when I maybe have seen the effects of excessive inhalation of bourbon. Yeah. And when, when you're having that interaction with him, does it change your opinion of him? Do you think, actually, what you, he's, cause he's got fast wits. Does that make you think, actually, you're more intelligent than I thought you were, or has he just got that sort of street savvy that bullies have? He's got street savvy. He's got... He's, you know, look, there is, there is cunning there. And he's, you know, he, he's smart on his feet. And if he gets caught, I said, oh, well, you know, well, someone told me that. It's not incorrect. It's not correct. You know, he was, he's, he's, he is, he's, he's agile, um, even if he doesn't know much about anything that he's <laughs> talking about. I mean, you know, he could be the president in 2024, but, yeah. I mean, I, so he was, he was definitely uh, unique to do it. And then, of course, during COVID, he's cut off from hosting, he's cut off from his rallies, he's cut off from having other presidents to come and stay, and there would be what's called a White House pool spray, where he would call people into the Oval Office and just talk to the cameras. And so if he finally realised, if he wanted to be on TV, he had to come to the press briefing room 
And I was there that, that sort of rather memorable night when he talked about maybe you could ingest bleach because uh, it does such a number on surfaces. And so if we could all do... And I, I woke up the next morning to a press release from the biggest manufacturer of Clorox, which is like Domestos here, saying, whatever you do, please do not drink <laughs> bleach. And don't I bet, listen to your head yeah, of state. Don't yeah. listen to the head of state, what he's saying. Yeah. And when he's saying that stuff, when you're in the room with him, and it, it, it looks probably like all these arenas, a lot smaller in person than it looks on telly, mm. quite a claustrophobic environment. Do you get the sense that actually he's kidding? Or did it, in that moment, feel absolutely deadly serious? In that moment, he believes that anything that he's saying is absolutely true. I'm convinced of that. Um, we were talking Do you remember? To... Yeah, I mean, I was just remembering that there's that one shot of his chief medical officer, or second chief, deputy chief medical officer, um, Deborah, Deborah Burks. Burks. Yeah. And the moment he says bleach, she just looks at her feet. <laughs> and it's so extraordinary because... And she stays like this for about just, five minutes. She can't catch anyone's eye. She can't nod, she can't look at the cameras, she can't look at the reporters... But neither does she walk out, you know. And it's a really interesting moment of somebody who's, like, caught in the tailwind of impossible power. And she's like... You, could, you can almost hear this sort of, you know, mental arithmetic. Do I walk out? Am I doing less harm? Do I contradict him? Do I stay and try and fight to save America from the ravages of COVID? And that's what, that's what the photo is. It's just her staring at her feet. You know, she's now the new host of Bleachcast, which... Uh, <laughs> which Dino, Dino is producing. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> So, Emily, you interviewed Prince Andrew once. Um, that is, never heard I mean, I'm not going on until you've done your impression. Of Prince Andrew? Yes. I don't think I can really do... The only thing that... Stru- I've never tried to do a Prince Andrew impression, but the thing that really struck me, and I don't know if it occurred to you when you were interviewing him, is his facial expressions were basically childish. And what was amazing was he would sort of oversell what little he knew and then your questions would deconstruct. So he'd go, mm, mm. There was a lot of kind of like, but I didn't know him, but, but I... And then you'd go, but you admitted that you knew him. Yes. And it was sort of like this sort of weird thing where he would oversell... And he was obviously used to getting away with it with the staff, was a viewer's perception of it. But in the room with him, did... Firstly, do you think he thought you would be effectively overawed by the room you were in, the person you were with, and that actually he was going to get off with it? It was a very big room. It was a ballroom, right? I've never interviewed anyone in a ballroom before. I mean, you don't have two people with two armchairs in a ballroom, do you? And it was a very swirly carpet. And so my first impression was like, blimey, God, that carpet was just sort of slightly, you know, it was too much, there was too much going on. And I think when we started to speak, he was just so happy, actually, that he was finally getting to talk about all this stuff. That was the sense I had, was that he... I mean, I can't imagine what it's like being a royal. I can't imagine what it's like when you can't push back and you can't tweet and you can't say, that's a load of rubbish, and you can't sort of go out and do your, you know, little photo shoot saying, oh, I'm fine, I've just made myself a double latte. You know, whatever, you know. You... So you voted coffee in the referendum. Um... <laughs> oh, no. God, I said I was impartial. <laughs> Terrible. I love tea as well. But I think my point is that... I sort of came away thinking he was happy 
he was happy. You know, he was happy to have done that. He was happy to have gone out. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is love or punishment. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the, that was the thing. I, I sort of thought he was a man who was really, really relieved, actually, to be able to sit down and say whatever he'd wanted to say for ten years. So, as, as well as him effectively, you know, finally having a voice in that regard, it, it, I mean, it, it, so much of what he did seems terribly naive, not just in granting the interview, but his behaviour through it. As the interview is unfolding, does it occur to you at some point that this bloke is effectively clueless about what he's doing to his own reputation, or are you so focused no. on the answers you've got to get? It's really weird, but you're 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 in the zone, and all you're think you don't actually think, oh blimey, you know, you don't let yourself think anything. You just think, have I asked that? Have I got the date right? Have I got the name right? Was my tone okay? There's one moment in the interview, and I was really cautious. Funny enough not to talk over him, not to interrupt, not to sort of, not to seem glib or shouty. And there's only one moment that comes at the very end of it where I kind of, I can't help myself. And I sort of correct him. And it's like when he, he was talking about Jeffrey Epstein. He said, well, his behaviour was a bit unbecoming. (laughs) He was a sex offender. I mean, we know that he was a sex offender. And I was like, unbecoming. That's a word you use when, you know, you filled your own glass at the table before you filled somebody else's. Like, it's not unbecoming. He's a sex offender. He's a convicted sex offender. And that was the one moment where I think it sort of burst out. You know, you've, you've you've got your word wrong and I've got to correct that. And I remember afterwards coming out thinking, oh, blimey, did I ever, did I ever step the mark there? Was that was I rude? Was I too... You know, and I sort of grabbed my editor, you know, by the arm, and I was like, Stu, Stu, I think, you know, I, I kind of burst in, and I said, I kind of corrected him, and I said, unbecoming. And he was like, yeah, I know. And I was like, yeah, I know, but, but definitely leave it in, right? Because <laughs> you've got to leave it in. <laughs> and so it was... You must have known there were just unbelievable news lines coming... Because, I mean, we sit next to each other every day and do interviews. Yeah. And you're, you know, it was a straightforward shooting weekend. And yeah. you're thinking, oh, my God, that, mark that one. It was just a, you know, Pizza Express, and it's not normal. I didn't sweat. I mean, no, you must have been <laughs> clocking them off one by one. Yeah. You know that what you've heard is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I think that kind of, you know, goes. But in that instant, all you're thinking is, will there be this moment where I've, I suddenly realise I haven't asked the critical question, mm. right? That's the thing as a journalist. You're always thinking, oh, God, you know, you come out and you've been talking to the CEO of blah, 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 and then you read on the wires five minutes later, oh, they've just laid off a 1,000 people, and you forgot to ask the question of, you know, have you got any layoffs coming down the thing? You're r- always questioning yourself. What have I missed out? What have I got wrong? It's a, it's a bit of paranoia, isn't it, you know? Always. Yeah, it is. And so I think in that hour... And I was really lucky, actually, to have a full hour. I knew what he was saying was pretty extraordinary. But I, I was like, that was the other bit of my brain. It's like, yeah, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. Have I got, have I followed up? Have I got the date right? Have I, did I get that right? Did I, you know? And that's what you're doing as long as you're in the room, in their presence, yeah. And before the interview, going into it, so you get it granted. That must be fairly exciting. You've got an interview with Prince Andrews at the centre of this global news story. In your head, did you have any idea? Did, did you have an expectation of how it was going to go? Did you think, well, she's going to be pretty well-trained, he's going to be fairly defensive, we'll be lucky to get anything out of him? I knew it all hinged on how he answered the first question. 
And the first question I asked him was, why have you decided to do this now? And there was a sort of 50-50. He could have said, oh, it's wonderful to be able to talk about pitch at the palace. It's wonderful to be able to talk about public service and the monarchy. Wonderful to be able to talk about voluntary work. And, you know. and I thought, if he does that, then the whole premise of the interview needs to start from scratch. And I need to kind of go, hmm, actually, we're not here to talk about pitch at the palace. Actually, we're not here to talk about voluntary, blah, 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 blah. And I would have to do that. And in his first answer, he mentions Epstein. And there was a bit of me that just went, I get it, right? You get it. We're both here to talk about the same thing. And it was sort of a test because it was the moment in which I knew he was serious about delivering the interview that we discussed. Because... He could, you know, he could have just stalled. He could have said, well, I can't pretend I never knew her. It was not a... But I would like to tell you about Pitch of the Palace. You know, and he didn't do that. And actually, you know, all credit to him. He, he let me ask every single question that we, I, you know, the, the women who'd had their questions needed answering. And has he sent you any messages since? <laughs> Not a lot. No, not a lot. I mean, I sort of, funnily enough, I come across people in sort of pockets of public life who tell me, they, it's like sort of jigsaw identification. They've helped me piece together what happened afterwards. And that's really fascinating. Like the person who said they were at a shooting lunch with him the weekend after he'd done the interview. And the point at which the Queen had read the transcript and the point at which... You know, so all this stuff is fascinating for me, um, but it hasn't been directly from him. Sorry, I just want to interrupt a tiny bit. Um, can we go back to Davos? <laughs> the party we were talking about, because there was somebody in the room? Of course. Princess Eugenie was in the same room at the same party and, as Emily Maitlis, and I thought, ooh, that... This could be fun. <laughs> I, I'd, pay to, I'd pay good money to watch this. Um, Do you know, yeah, weirdly, I feel very sort of respectful of, you know, his daughters and their life. And actually, if this whole thing was about young women, right, you know, I sort of think I don't want any more damage to any more young women to come from this. And sorry, that sounds really sort of... Sorry. It sounds really kind of... OTT, but actually, it was an interesting moment. There was this dynamic, and, and she was there, and I was... The, there was somebody sort of being a go-between, going, she knows you're here, and you know she's there, maybe don't meet, don't talk, don't say hello, don't go over, don't go... You know. And actually, I just sort of thought, um, they can't be collateral from this, and I don't know what his life is like, but actually if he did the interview because he wanted his daughters to have a lovely time or, a, you know, feel freed from it or be able to get married or not have the stigma, then that was a good reason and I just, and I you know, I sort of feel I, I really wish them well and that this shouldn't impact on anything that they do in their lives. Yeah. And honestly for you it's just such a, you know, you're holding someone to account, it's very important journalism, it's also a huge TV moment, it's a career moment as as uh, appalling as the subject matter is. You know, occasionally when people have done something, they'll like, watch it back on YouTube. <laughs> have you watched it back at all? And how, how many times? 
<laughs> um, no. Not once? No. Why not? Because I'm so hypercritical. That all I, I mean, obviously I've watched clips when I've been shown clips or, you know, bits of it. I see, I, you're going to think I'm a complete nutcase, I see the crease on my jacket. I'm like, oh, God, that crease on the jacket is terrible. Why didn't somebody help me button it properly so the crease wasn't there? I watch it with this weird, you know, presenter's eye to it. Oh, why did I look down at that point? Oh, my God, the blusher. You know, I, it's so weirdly self-critical, and I'm not unhappy, you know, I know the interview stands, and I know that that sort of works. But I very rarely, I don't know about soaps, I, I find it quite hard to watch my own work back. I mean, the, the best bit of advice you're ever given in television is if you think something's terrible, it probably wasn't as bad as you think. And if you think something's epic, it probably wasn't as good as you think. So on that basis, I sort of, you know, let I'll, it go. I'll be, for me to be kind to her, it was as good as... Everyone said it was. I mean, it was one of the greatest broadcast interviews yeah. that we've seen. And it's just astonishing. I mean, you know, we, we bemoan... I mean, the, the weird paradox is that we bemoan the political interviews that we all do yeah. where the politician comes on and doesn't answer any of your questions. Yeah. Prince Andrew's biggest yep. mistake was to answer every bloody <laughs> and question. More. And, he more. And, and volunteer a whole lot more besides. <laughs> and have you... You know, occasionally brands and things are quite cheeky in their PR... Pizza Express Woking ever said that. <laughs> Are you sure you could get a margarita for Do you know nothing? what? It's really Window funny. Window table, large Perone. I said to my, my godson, I said, what would you like for Christmas? Come on, you're older, you know, 16. What would you like for Christmas? What, and he's like, Ems, I just want to go to Pizza Express in Woking with you. <laughs> and I booked it. Wait! I booked it. We haven't been yet. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. It's one of those 2027 calendars. <laughs> oh, I see. For like, you're you're going to do it at no, some point. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I will. What do you think? Have you been... There's two, apparently. The trouble is, I don't want to get the wrong one. That would be terrible. No. It would kill my, you know... we just got to go to finding. both. Yeah, you have to go to both. Go for one for brunch and one for... Yeah. Dough balls lunch. in one, the pizza in the other. <laughs> 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 that be, because in a way, like... Not to go too far into it, but... Obviously, it's now such a fabled place. Yeah. It's not quite the Abbey Road crossing, but like, it'd be one of those... <laughs> Why not? I want a blue plaque. <laughs> There'll be tourists outside it for years to come, but... Was, at that point, by the way, did, did the BBC ever go? Because I remember, obviously, when Martin Bashir interviews Princess... And I know you, Martin Bashir, at very different uh, times of... It's lovely, isn't it? Just being in this, like, collective <laughs> sentence. Like... But then people went, oh, well, he got the big interview, so give the guy an interview show. Did the BBC ever say, why not have... Emily, make this meets dot, dot, dot. And every week it's a different celebrity interview or a different individual. Was that the pitch? Yeah, they did. That's why I left and started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a bad idea. Yeah. Um, so, the BBC now. Today, John, you've broken a story about <coughs> the chair yeah. of the BBC, Richard Sharp, and the fact that, I want to get this right, as chair of the BBC, he sat on the interview panel for the head of news... And this is a man that helped negotiate a uh, loan function for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So, returning to our conversation about... I love that, a loan function. A loan function. I was trying to sound like... I I know, know, it was perfect. It was like bulletin perfect, wasn't it? What what do they call it? There's another word for it. An overdraft. Facility. 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 A new began with F. I think is the word. Yeah, that was it. An overdraft facility. Richard Sharp, um, who was a very... I mean, look, you know... 
the BBC have had successive uh, chairmen who have been either Conservative or Labour. Chris Patton was the uh, BBC chairman for a while, but was scrupulous in just being, defending the BBC. Um, and, you know, there was just nothing like... There's never been anything like that in terms of <coughs> coming in, having been such a big donor, and still, as we've learned over the weekend, as a result of this amazing Sunday Times story, that, you know, there was still this very close involvement with Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister, and he was obviously had serious financial difficulties and needed a loan facility because of some of the expenses that he had brought on by his lifestyle. Um, and, um, and, and so... And Sharp decided, want, said, I need to be on the selection... I want to be part of the interview panel that will choose the next BBC head of news. Now, the BBC head of news is responsible for delivering impartiality. And the irony is, the person that has been appointed, a brilliant journalist, and, you know... I'm sure she would have got it, whoever had been on the interview panel, a woman called Deborah Chaness, who'd come from uh, ITV, uh, wrote an article in September saying that the way that we rebuild trust in the BBC is to show transparency and accountability and to be clear about how things have come about. And then we learned that Richard Sharp was uh, not quite as uh, transparent and clear and I think it's, a, I, you know, I, and I don't say this with any... I mean, I, I, I love my time at the BBC, and I know you have too, but it makes it very much more difficult for the BBC Director-General to say to a journalist, well, hang on, you've just been... you failed on impartiality, given that the chairman did not declare any of this when he was asked, is there anything that we should know about that could materially affect your appointment. And that is why I think that it's a potentially pretty sticky situation uh, for Richard Sharp right now. And when you were both there, did you get a sense that the BBC was effectively being influenced by the Tory government? (laughs) There are pauses that sometimes tell you more than they are meant to. Uh, I mean, that, that was hard for me to say uh, in some ways because I was obviously in the US uh, for, for most of this. Um, but there were occasions where you could tell that the effect of a call from someone senior in Downing Street may have had a chill effect on... And I would, I would say, it's, you know, there's, there's been a Conservative government for 12 years, Right. I don't think we got it with David Cameron. I don't think we got it with George Osborne. I don't think we got it with Theresa May. I don't, I don't know, but I don't think we're getting it with Rishi Sunak. I think it was a specific time in which... <laughs> you do the identification from that one. I think there was a specific time in which that overreach started to happen. And I think it became uncomfortable because... The word impartiality was used a lot, and breaches of impartiality was used a lot, but it didn't mean that you weren't being impartial. It meant that you were being critical of whoever was in power, and I think that is a very 
significant and important difference to get across, that as a journalist, whoever is in power, right, whatever party, whatever leader, your job is to hold people in positions of power to account, right? And I'm completely confident that, you know, as the news agents, we will be doing that. You know, if Keir Starmer's government is in power, we will be holding them to account, we'll be asking those questions. We will be as rigorous as we possibly can with checking our facts and making sure that the right questions are being asked. But what you don't expect is when you're asking those questions of, of, of the government of the day in power to be told that you shouldn't be asking those questions. And, you know, an example of that was when we were in the middle of the Brexit negotiations, and I said, so, you know, what's going on? Because we're hearing this from the EU president, and I quoted, you know, somebody who'd been on the programme on Newsnight, and I was told to be more patriotic, right? Now, by a cabinet minister, I was told, oh, Emmy, it'd be really nice if journalists could just be a little bit more patriotic. Now, look... You could argue that my job at the time was not to be patriotic, it was to ask the questions. Or you could argue that my patriotism came from working for a public service, for the licence fee, and, and doing my job properly, right? My job it's not our job to, to be business. patriotic or unpatriotic. Our job's also... And so I think there was, there, was a, there was a period of overreach where it became harder just to do our job. And I think that's kind of you know, dare I say, been vindicated. I think if, if journalists are now called up for breaching partiality, they're allowed to raise a sceptical eyebrow <laughs> to where that complaint is coming from. But there's a dark irony to this, isn't there? The, the Prime Minister you didn't name is the, is the one... At a time when truth was such an issue... And people say it's under every government. You know, it's if the Blair, it was in Iraq. You know, it's not. It's yeah. not just Boris Johnson's government that, that it had an issue with. But there was. It felt that it went beyond the normal boundaries of telling the truth about a policy or something like that. It seemed that the, the culture and the tone of that government was markedly different, even from the other Conservative predecessors and successors to him. That's the point at which the public needed the BBC to be really strong and apply the same rules as it had applied to other administrations, and yet when it's facing an administration that's bending the rules more than any others, it sounds like it bent along with it, rather than at the moment we needed it the most, failing to stand up. I, I, I don't think anything, I, you know, I don't think anything's deliberate. I don't think anything is, is you know, we, we always, we, within the BBC, we said it's more often cock-up, not conspiracy. Right? I don't believe there's a big conspiracy. But I think the moment you stop your journalists trying to do their job properly is the moment that everyone should be nervous because journalists are hopefully, you know, majorly asking questions on behalf of the electorate and voters and the public and all the rest of it. So it's not our voice that's being shut down, it's everyone else's, you know. Look, you know, I was kind of went through the, the four years of Donald Trump and I saw the culmination of it on January the 6th uh, when a mob tried to storm the Capitol. It is not our job to tell people what to think. We have got to give people news that is fact-based from what we've seen, from what we have witnessed ourselves. The election was not stolen in the US in 2020. Donald Trump lost it. And you have to be able to say certain things with clarity. And all I care... And I've seen the danger. I, I, you know, on January the 6th, 
When I went on the 10 o'clock news that night, the mob was still in control of the Congress. Mm. The certification of Joe Biden's victory had not taken place. American democracy at that moment seemed in a pretty fragile yeah. place. And I think it is not our job to tell people how to vote. But if we want to live in a liberal democracy where we have the rule of law, freedom of speech, due process, all the rest of it, then we've got to make sure that people are making judgments when they go to the polling booth on good information. And I honestly think that journalism has never been more important because a well-informed democracy is the answer to some of the crude populism that we have seen in the US and, dare I say it, here and in other parts of Europe. Luckiest might work for that. <laughs> you mentioned Tony Blair earlier, John. One of the first books... <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I just... I've got to ask him before I forget. I don't want to get to the end of an interview and, and not ask the question. One of the first books I bought with my um, paper round money was a book by John Sopel called Tony Blair, The Moderniser. And it's one of the best books I've ever read. And it was one of the first biography... Probably the first biography. But tell us how old you were. I, I, I no, no, no. How old are you now? 40. Sorry, sorry. You're 40. I'm 40 now, yeah. That book came out in 1995, 28 years ago, okay. which means you were buying a book about Tony Blair at the age of 12. You're a freak! That's what he is. He's a freak. Ladies, ladies, and, gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. <laughs> Do you know what? I think because of when my birthday is, I might have been 11. <laughs> I turned 40 last year. So, but... Was I really? Yeah, fuck. Can I just warn you? Don't you get it from Maintenance? She's polluting everybody with the F word. No, I'm going to warn you about John Sopel's use of the word on our podcast, unprecedented. (laughs) Because sometimes it comes out as unprecedented. (laughs) And if you listen, he uses that word a lot. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it just so happens that John Sopel's last book was called... Unprecedented. Unprecedented. (laughs) And every time he kind of lands on this, well, that is unprecedented. Lewis and I start giggling because we think he's just trying to sell more copies of his book. Says old airhead next to me. (laughs) Well, when people listen to the podcast, I will put an Amazon link to all of your books, um, which are all wonderful. But the thing I remember about Tony Blair, The Modernizer, was around my 10th birthday when I got it, was... um, I think I've got some bubble gum, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt and Tony Blair the Moderniser. And (laughs) what I remember is, in the picture section, you had handwritten notes of his, I think, Clause 4 speech. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you say in the book that he had lines early in the speech that if they went well, then he was going to go for it and say, we're going to not just change our party um, or whatever it is he said. No, go on, go on, go on. But change the country, Emily. And I think, you know, looking back at that period now, yes, it was a time of great change, but it's only change if you make it, frankly. And with clause for it was a way to show, you know, not just about common ownership, frankly, and whether it should be, you know, the means of production or whatever. It was a symbolic change to say to the country, we've changed and now the country can change. And I think that's what Keir Starmer's doing now. But, yeah, it's not my simplest thing. But anyway. Anyway. Brilliant. But now... But is, do you remember that about the book, that you had these... And did he personally give you those handwritten notes? And if so, where are they? And I've still got them. But is that... Oh. 
That's for your 41st. And I, and I, and I also have his first election uh, address, the first election leaflet that he put out. Now, Beaconsfield or Sedgefield? <laughs> It, I think we should start a match attack. Sedgefield, where he talked about his support for CND, which he then would later deny. But it was also etched in green rather than red uh, because there was a big Catholic constituency and they thought it, it would be good to get a, a green edging. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've still got that name oh, yeah. somewhere. But we've moved a number of times and God knows where it is. But I've got a whole file. Uh, but yeah, I have got you some of his original... You two should get a room. I know. Quite frankly. I have Just got imagine some, this, I have this got some of his go original on. handwritten etchings on the reform of Clause 4. But that is... That is... Uh, Tony Blair's handwritten notes about the reform of... I mean, that is a moment in British history and you've got it yes. in the loft somewhere. In the loft somewhere. I'd yeah. love to come round with a, a pair of, like, white <laughs> gloves. <laughs> Just... <laughs> yeah, you must, Matt. Okay. It's the day. Um... Before, I'll take some quick questions from the audience. But uh, the, the other thing that actually I just saw before we came on, uh, and not to darken the mood completely, but Ghislaine Maxwell has given an interview to Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> and uh, she's saying that the photo that Prince Andrew, in your interview, where he says, oh, my people have looked at it, they say it might not be Now, I realise Ghislaine Maxwell's word may not be um, the most trustworthy, but she's saying that that picture is false. I mean, is that a possibility? Yeah, he thinks it is as well. You know, that was one of the things that he maintained the whole interview is that he thinks... He tried to explain to us was that it wasn't his hand and that he was in the wrong clothes. He would have been in... If he'd gone out in, in you know, on the town in, uh, as he called it, trampses, that he would have uh, <laughs> worn a suit, that he wouldn't have worn civvies or, you know... Do you call them civvies? I don't know <laughs> what... What? Anyway, yeah. So he he always maintained it was a fake. I've got no idea. I mean, I know that was something that we felt we had to research before we did the interview. And I've, you know, I've seen the photo. He's seen the photo. I, I don't know. But I'm really obviously jealous of the interview. I mean, because she did. She gave it to I think a a CBS American uh, reporter as well. And I was listening to an interview with her, and she, you know, they worked really hard not just to get. Ghislaine Maxwell to agree to the interview, but to get the prison officer and the head of the prison, you know, to sort of get the whole... Th There's a lot of work that we should say that goes into the whole just trying to nail down whether you can broadcast from a prison. I mean, who knew? You know, but um, it's it quite a feat, actually, that, I think. Because if you haven't seen it, I mean, if this has just come out, the, the interview is literally her on a prison phone. Yeah. Behind, like, a prison screen. So I don't know if someone's held an iPad up to that or the... <laughs> I, I thought Jeremy Kyle had got the interview himself. Obviously, he, he hasn't gone in there with... A lie detector or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it might be that he did it as well. I know that it was the CBS. Uh, it was an American journalist that had been pursuing this interview for years. You know, for, for sort of two years. Because it's. I mean, if you'd been offered Ghislaine Maxwell, that have you tried to interview her? I have. I mean, I've you know I've sort of reached out, but it's. I thought I wouldn't be her first choice. <laughs> I mean. What can I say? Because, it, I mean, the, the thing with the photo... I mean, first, that was the thing I was going to ask. Did he miss plural, tramps? Do you say tramps? Yeah, tramps, tramps. Tramps. That's the sort of thing my mum would have told me off for. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so odd that a royal who's had, like, the best education money can buy 
doesn't know where to stick an apostrophe. Well, unless you're trying to give off the sense that you've never heard of it and never been there. Oh, trances. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like, oh, I love appearing at the Duke's Theatre. Right? That's what, you know. I love appearing... I mean, it's weird. It's the Duchess. Right? You know, I love appearing at the Duke's Theatre. Maybe you sort of get things slightly wrong just to... Who knows? I don't so know. maybe the Pizza Express wasn't in Woking. Maybe not. Maybe it was the other one. <laughs> so let's, I'll take a couple of quick questions from the audience. Uh, so if I can ask for one-sentence questions, please, and one-sentence answers, I will come upstairs as well. I don't have a roving mic, so the annoying thing is I have to repeat the question, but I'll try and uh, look towards the back first. Is anyone towards the back that would like to ask a question? No, the first hand there. If you were to interview each other, what would you ask each other? Mm. On right. the news agents. On the news agents. <laughs> uh, is that nothing. a podcast? Ne- I want to know nothing more about John Sobol. <laughs> Honestly, I hear so much of his life, the anecdotes, the anecdotes. They go on forever. I have to cut them down. Sounds like this relationship is breaking down. <laughs> I would like to ask Emily how she's such a wonderful, kind gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Okay, let's have another question. If, if there is any... Uh, yes, over there. Um, for Emily and John, do you think anon- anonymity with government source this and government source that inside of that um, generally has a net good or net bad impact in journalism? Is anonymity from government sources a net good or net bad? For Paul was jokes left me clowns to the right. Yeah. yeah. Given the way the right has ruined the country, do you think that? Um, my last one's called Clowns to the Left and Me Jokers to the Right. Given that the right is ruined the country, do I still believe that? Do you stand by? I do stand by. There was a reason why the right was allowed to run the country. It's because the left went fucking batshit. <laughs> so uh, I, I stand by. I stand by uh, taking the piss out of both sides, although I take the point, and I think um, the Labour Party obviously is, is under new leadership. <laughs> and, uh, it's looking at the 22nd century in the eye or something. What did you say? It's looking 2023 20, in the eye. What well, I look 2023 20, in the eye. eye. And I want to be able to say the 21st century. Whatever, I can't remember what the phrase is. Yeah, I think was. I'd heard a Labour politician once said we need to look the 21st century in the eye. Yeah. Love that. Right in the eye. But, um, but, but do buy tickets really for the new tour. But the sources question is one. I mean, the lovely thing about our chats now is that we literally ask the, this kind of question to each other and of, each, and of ourselves the whole time, which is, does quoting a source make you feel dirty because you're not naming them, or does it make you feel like you're giving your audience something that they wouldn't have got elsewhere? And honestly, I mean, it's, you know, I don't... I'm not trying to sit on the fence, but I think sometimes we do it because we think that we have added, we have contributed something to the conversation that we couldn't if we named them or if we didn't have them at all but it's something that's really close to you know what you're saying is really close i'd be lovely if we named everyone but then they wouldn't ever talk to us again so you know <laughs> i kind of have to choose i think I, and i just think you've got to respect that and it's annoying because it would be much better if people were candid what i won't do is some people will try and smear another politician just by saying look off the mm. record do you do know that this person is da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And I think, well, you, you are just doing... You, you're not their press officer. And so if you think that they are some, adding something to debate, which you just know there is no way they would dare say on the record... And so, for example, over the past 24 hours, have we been contacted by an awful lot of our BBC colleagues 
not entirely ecstatic about what's going on uh, with the chairman of the BBC. Uh, yes, loads of them. Can we name them? No, because it will put them in an impossible position. One thing I would say, funnily enough, is I made a documentary about the MPs' expenses 10 years after to see if what had happened to trust and the relationship between the public and the politicians had kind of played into the Brexit referendum result. And I interviewed Heather Brook, who was the information campaigner, who basically brought that whole story to light. And what was fascinating about what she said was she'd worked in the US... And she said, the whole system of accountability is completely different. You go to the public records office, you get down your files, you get your microfiche, you check you know, numbers and expenses and, and sums and all the rest of it. Here, we tend to work on a network which is like, I'll take you out to dinner, I'll take you out to lunch, let's have a drink, let's do a WhatsApp group. And it's a very different system. You know, it is more of an old boys network, which is like, who do you know? What are they telling you? How have you got by your information? In the US, and if you, you, know, if you go back to something like Spotlight, or you know, the, the way those stories are broken is through the use of data and fact and public information. And that does seem to me broadly... A more healthy way of doing journalism. Yeah. Uh, just on your former colleagues, who I'm sure you're still very friendly with, do any of them, like, is Nick Robinson saying, God, why didn't Dino ask me to do a bloody podcast? I'm <laughs> so sad here waking up at 3 a.m. to do the bloody radio. <laughs> well, Seven. <laughs> Kidding, it's like three. <laughs> Dino, Dino, did he ask that? <laughs> yeah, basically, Dino's saying, yeah, no, we've. He said no, and that's why we got you two. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. OK, a question from upstairs. and It's been all men putting their hand up so far. So if... Uh, yes, the lady there. My father always told me never to vote for someone who didn't look like they'd laugh at a fart. <laughs> I, I wonder what the funniest interview you've ever had. Wow. Didn't what? Didn't laugh me, at a fart. Never <laughs> vote for someone who wouldn't laugh at a fart. Yeah. <laughs> What's the funniest interview? I mean, that's really a joke. Oh uh, so question too sexual. I'm, I'm struggling. Go that's a great go. rule. <laughs> Who did he last vote for? <laughs> Corbyn. Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's broken his I own rule. I think sometimes it works. Sometimes yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with rules, isn't it? Yeah. Boris Johnson would laugh at a fart. <laughs> Hang on, vote for the person who would laugh or who wouldn't laugh. OK, so vote for the person that would laugh at a fart. I think he meant that he keep humour in politics. Yes, but you vote for Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, whatever, it's whoever the candidates are, isn't it? It's, it's, it's whoever's on off. That's funny. such a good rule, though. Man. So funny. Who's the fuck? Go on, what's the funniest thing? I'm going I'm to be, in a, you know, going home on the tube in a bit, and I'll just think, oh, yeah, I should have said that. <laughs> I can't... I, there's, what's the funniest interview? Or, like, strangest, or, or, or... Have you ever interviewed someone that's just... Bizarre. Well, I have to say, I did interview the Dalai Lama, and that was really interesting because he farted. <laughs> he, I've he, thought of it now. Go on. <laughs> the historian David Starkey, where in on Five Live, I was presenting a show, and <laughs> in the middle of the interview, <laughs> and I thought, oh my god, there has been an audible breaking of wind in the studio. And, I mean, Starkey as well. That's not, he's, not a, he's not a young gym bunny, is he? Like, that's not... That is, that is sediment. Oh. 
grouse and old wine. Oh, oh. Like it. Sort of an old loft. Uh, take these <laughs> images away from my head <laughs> right now. It's not my fault. It's just this is the voice of the people. Um, so, Emily, yours was... So, the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama was really funny because, you know, it's not every day that you get to interview the... Uh, Dalai Lama. Human, you know, manifestation of God, and so I was like, "Oh, that's fantastic." Where is it? Is it in a? Is it in a place of worship? Is it? No, it's an airport hotel at Heathrow. So I was like, "Oh, great!" So the Dalai Lama had this fantastic suite at the, I think it was Terminal Three. Anyway, it was a very nice suite, and he's in his saffron robes and all the rest of it. And I sort of started this whole interview, and I said, "It was meant to be like his. He'd been, you know, his 80th birthday." I said, "What?" What do you, what has changed? What have you learned from all this time, you know, as a, as a living God? And he, I said, what, what do you feel you are now? And he said, I am more bold. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, it's so wonderful <laughs> to hear somebody who's come from a child and he became God and very young, blah, blah, blah. And he's now realised, and I was like, this is, I'm learning something. You've got to be more bold, you've got to be more courageous, you've got to be more this. And then he taps his head and he goes, ah, no hair, no hair, no hair. And I was like, oh, shit. He just meant he was bald. That's not funny. But it does kind of play if you think. Anyway, he was a lovely man. Didn't understand a word he said, really, honest. So, but he seemed charming. But Matt, you've asked me, you asked me about uh, Blair. 20 years ago, I was the... Paris correspondent, and Blair came over to France to, and went to La Rochelle, because the, the Socialist Party uh, was having a, what they call a colloque in La Rochelle, it was kind of summer park conference, and uh, Jospin was the Prime Minister, yeah. Blair invite, had been invited to go and speak at this thing, and, he, 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 and Blair speaks really good French, he worked for a year as a barman in France, and so he thought he'd do the speech in French, and he was, say, he was, he was saying to Jospin uh, on this stage and kind of audience like this, and saying, he said, I think, you know, you've got some very interesting policies and that uh, I th think we should adopt them. Except what he said is, I find you very attractive and I'd like to take you in a lot of different positions. <laughs> <laughs> and so the French audience were going... rule then that politics flair was never allowed to speak in french again <laughs> when he was abroad because sometimes these things come out not quite right wow that was the best question of the night thank you so much um well that brings us to the end this has been so special and before we thank emily and john please a huge thank you to everyone who works here at the duchess theater and at avalon who made tonight possible all of you for being such a wonderful audience yes Dina for coming up with so many different formats. But ladies and gentlemen, two titans of British broadcasting, two of the best guests I've ever had the privilege to interview for such an amazing night. Please, a huge thank you for Emily Maitlis and John Sobel. Well, there you go, Emily Maitlis and John Sobel. What amazing people and what great fun. And I genuinely, I mean, you know, sometimes when you suggest something and you say it as a joke, but deep down you're like, I hope one day I do get to go up to John Sopel's loft <laughs> and read through the notes that he was given to help him write that biography. Um, but they're just such fantastic people. And and the talent, I mean, this is the thing sometimes. I think um, there are so many, obviously, talented broadcast journalists in this country. I've had so many of them on the show. Um 
But sometimes people just have that extra bit more, that charisma and that star quality. And just that sense of fun about life. And it's not even just about politics or journalism. You can be a serious person in your work, but also just have a bit of fun about you. And they both have that. And it was just such a, a wonderful special evening. So thank you to everyone who came. Thank you to you for downloading this. Please share it far and wide. Leave a five-star written review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And you can get tickets for the live future shows. My next guest, Ian Blackford. It's been ages since I've had... In fact... At a London show, it's years since I had someone from the SNP on. I interviewed Joanna Cherry at the Edinburgh Festival last summer, but it's been ages since I had an SNP politician on the show in London, so that's really special and very rare. So Monday the 6th of February, Ian Blackford, uh, and then Keir Starmer, Eddie Izzard, Christian Gurry-Murthy, Ruth Davidson, and many more to be announced. Follow me on Twitter, because sometimes it's announced there first, at Matt Ford. And yes, just thank you for downloading this. What a treat, eh? See you soon. ta ra. 